Well, hope you have a Bible. If you do, we're going to be in Jeremiah 5 tonight. We're going to cover Jeremiah 5 and 6. Don't get too worried. We're not going to read all 61 verses. Um, and they, they're, they're long 60 verses. Sometimes the Bible chapters have a lot of verses, but they're, they're not long. Um, these are two very lengthy chapters. We're going to cover them all at once, not because it's, they're not as important, but because they really uh, cover a single topic. Um, and we're going to talk about that tonight. And here's, let me just say this up front, um, because this is a message that... Um, we all need to hear, let me just say that, but uh, you all, as the faithful uh, attendees to God's house, um, you all probably already excel in these areas more than the average believer, um, and uh, I say that because I see it in you all, and I watch it in you all, um, but I, I think it's important that we, uh, on a Wednesday night, talk about this, number one, because it's, it's good for God's people to get reinforced in what we know is right, with what God's Word says about it, and that helps us be bolder in our practice. Um, that helps us be even more determined to not back down from what's right. Also, though, it's very tempting, as devout as we may be, it is so tempting, and it's so easy to, to back off from what's right in this world, because the devil works his hardest toward very devoted believers, because he wants to get us bitter, and he wants to get us um, hard-hearted, he wants to make us feel like that our good efforts and our good works are not working or not doing anything or accomplishing anything. He wants us to think, well, there's no use or people don't really understand why I'm doing it, so why should I do it? The devil works the hardest on believers who attend every service they can, I think, because he wants to, to just kind of burn us out of our diligence and our determination. Um, and, and I don't just say that because it is tonight and, and it's Wednesday and we're studying this. I say that because I know this from personal experience. Um, Jeremiah 5 and 6 um, could have been written, could be written by a prophet of God if he were to send one into today's world. A prophet of God could observe the circumstances and happenings in the year 2020 of our world and the very t same chapters could be written and applicable as they were when they were written uh, 600 or so BC. Just a warning though, uh, to get the most out of these chapters, we've got to do our best, and I'm preaching to myself here, but I'm saying this out loud because somebody needs to hear this. We've got to do our best to see the world through God's eyes because we all have a certain lens that we see the world through. We all put on a certain pair of glasses every day, literally or physically, or, literally, or uh, uh, spiritually, metaphorically speaking. We all put on glasses every day that we have over time learned to see the world through. As Americans, if you're a part from another country, if you're a certain age bracket, certain generation, we all see the world through a certain lens based on how we have come up in the world, based on how we've developed. Nothing wrong with that. That's called being a person. That's called being human. That's called being you. But it's tempting sometimes to not understand what God is saying because we see things through our own set of lens. So let's understand that and let's do our best to hear how God is speaking to us now. It's always hard to read the Bible and not bring our assumptions and apply our filters and ideologies on top and over the text. Um, it's hard for me as a 30-year-old uh, uh, born in 1990, they call us millennials, it's hard for me to not read the Bible through a millennial lens, born in America, born in the South. I'm sure it's hard for you not to read the Bible through whatever lens you have. That's okay, but I have to understand there are tendencies that I have that sometimes might keep me from getting the full measure from God. And that's 
part of being transformed by the word, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the word. So that's part of my process as a teacher, as a student. I'll be honest with y'all. Jeremiah 5 is special to me, not because I like the chapter. Um, well, I mean, I don't dislike the chapter, but I don't necessarily feel good about the chapter. Um, it's one of the most important chapters in my own spiritual development and growth because of how much it has convicted me over the years. Uh, and I, I don't say that uh, just because it's, oh, well, of course he says that. He says that about every chapter. Well, maybe I do. Uh, but about nine years ago, I remember the day and the hour. This is one of those transformational moments that I had as a, as a believer. I remember opening up the Bible about nine years ago and thinking, you know what, I've read through Jeremiah, but I don't know what Jeremiah actually talks about. I can tell you three or four verses, but I don't know the whole story. Uh, I read through, uh, went out, to, set out to read through Jeremiah about nine years ago, spring of 2011, and uh, this chapter stopped me in my tracks. Um, and it calls me to evaluate and examine the way I saw the world. Um, and nine years later, I still uh, have to go back and read this chapter because it still challenges me in a fresh way and, and in a consistent way as it did then. My politics, my perception of different classes, different cultures has been challenged and helped by this chapter. So you may not have similar experiences I did when we studied this chapter. You may already know this chapter by heart, and you may not have, a, have, have had that kind of transformational moment with it. But for me, um, i got to be transparent in, about the significance of this chapter because this chapter changed my life. It changed my, the direction of my ministry very early on as it was. This chapter made me make a decision as a preacher and as a Christian about how I was going to preach God's Word, how I was going to live God's Word. Because this chapter, to me, was something I could not avoid and I could not stop from addressing, even though it would be very easy to. Um, so we've heard Jeremiah in the first four chapters. He has been a, he, God has used him to be a voice to the people of Judah about their falling away from God, how they walked away from God. God didn't leave them, they left God. And then chapter 4, after we heard about them leaving God, forsaking God, chapter 4, God gives them a simple and effective invitation back to him. We heard how God longs for his people. He gives them an invitation, enabling them to be restored to him in a loving, merciful, kind way. God says, you've left me, but I haven't left you. Here has how you can come back to me. And we broke that down into four points last week about what repentance is, what it looks like, how we can follow those same steps. However, we haven't really talked about why they fell away in the first place. Early on, he, Jeremiah talked about how they walked away from the well that was God and they turned to other wells that were not God. But we haven't talked about the specifics of why they walked away from God. But all we've kind of been given is this kind of general, not generic, but this kind of blanket statement that they forsook God for idols. You've heard that mentioned before in Jeremiah. Now, before we get into this, and maybe you have questions about the previous chapters on top of this, but you can ask those at this time. But I also want to ask you a question. What was or what is, in your own words, what is idol worship? We're going to talk about it, obviously. But what, do you, what is idol worship to you? What is, or what is or what was idol worship? Sure, sure. That's a great answer. Yeah, obviously, you know, people talk, preachers may say that we still worship idols today. We just don't call them idols. That's very true. 
Uh, but in the Old Testament, it's very clear that they worshipped a physical, not breathing or living, but a physical, we know them as dead, but a physical thing that they called a god. Um, we all remember Baal. Baal was the idol that the Jews worshipped in place of God over and over again. Um, that's told, told the story of in the books of uh, Samuel and Kings. Um, there were other gods that they worshipped. Marduk was a god that uh, the Babylonians worshipped, that the Jews worshipped. There's other gods and other idols. Um, but uh, both of y'all uh, said, it best, said it very well. An idol is something that you turn to as opposed to God. And, and yes, it can be just something of this world that we might not revere as a God, but it becomes a God in our way we, you know, live for it, uh, which, you know, whether it's a, you know, back in the day, people talk about you people worshiping uh, TVs, right? Worshiping, we worship people in this world. We may not call them idols, but they become idols. Now, um, really what, what I want to talk about up front here is what would be the appeal for worshiping an idol. Now, we may not, we read these Old Testament stories and you think, why would they turn away from God? Well, Yahweh, you know, which is, you know, we call him God, but he had a name, Yahweh. Why would they turn away from Yahweh after Yahweh had done X, Y, and Z for them and then they'd turn to this other God you never heard of before that had never done anything for them? Why would they do that? There was no reason. There was no, it wasn't like Baal showed up and said, hey, here's what I can do for you. Yahweh can do this, but I can do this. They may have, the prophets of Baal may have said that, but Baal never actually did anything. Remember, Elijah makes fun of Baal. He says, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he isn't listening. Because y'all, Elijah was saying, if Baal is actually God, where's he at? And of course, he poked fun at Baal. And of course, Yahweh showed up and proved that he was truly God. But we're going to get into the implications behind idol worship in chapter 5, as in what it was driving humanity away from the real God and false idols. Because there was a reason. I don't think it's a good reason, but there was a reason why they were walking away. Now, it turns out the idols were simply appealing to the fallen nature of every person. And they do this subtly. You know, we don't say in ourselves, I'm fallen, I'm sinful, I'm bad, so I'm going to go worship some God that's not real. That's not how it works, right? We think we're being more clever than that or being smarter than that. Idols, though, were, were and are gods made in our own image. As in gods that were created, maybe not by us, but by somebody like us that then appeals to us. Idols are gods, things that demand control over our lives, things that take control over our lives, things that may, that may seem like they give us the ability to go and go, come and go as we please, but things that soon after control us and won't let us leave. They're things that we make in our own image. Now, why would we make a god in our own image? As I put in uh, number two, idols were made in our own image. Essentially, they are it's wishful worship trying to will one's own desires into existence. Does that make sense? That you create a God that's after your image because you are trying to will your own desire into existence, as in, this is what I want. Here's a God that actually tells me I can get what I want. So you see, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. These people would make these gods that then would appeal to this nature that we all have that says, I want that. There was a fertility God. There was a God of the harvest. There was a God of rain, a God of this, a God of that. It was these things that were made to somehow appeal to this nature that we all have that says, I want this, give me a God that will give me that. So it's wishful worship. Now, people may have worshiped idols collectively, but idols are really all about that first letter in the word, I. 
Idolatry turns religion into competition. Now hear this. Eventually, the person you worship aside, the most senseless thing you can, I, I ever can imagine is why would anybody worship an idol with somebody else? Now, the Old Testament is full of people worshiping with other people. But think about this. When you worship an idol, you're worshiping that idol because you want it to get you to number one. You want it to get you to the top. You want to get what you, can, you, want, to get what you want. So when you worship alongside somebody else, eventually that person's going to be in the way of what you want. You see how it works? It's like being in line on Black Friday for a limited number of TVs. And you know how this works, don't you? There's only 10 TVs. They're only going to get 10 TVs, maybe less. But they say there's only going to be 10 TVs. But hey, there's 12 of us in line. Now, if I'm one of those 12 people, I don't want to get buddy-buddy with anybody because I might be someone they trample over to get the TV because as soon as they say green light and there's only 10 and there's 12 of us, we're all fighting against each other because there's only a limited number of things. So you see what I mean? Idol worship is all about I. You may worship with somebody else beside you, but the end, the end game is how can I get ahead of them? Because idols are all about I. Now, I bring that contrast because Christianity and even Judaism before, the worship of the true God is not about I. It's about us. Now, I don't worship us. We don't worship each other. But we worship God, but we're his children, right? Christianity emphasizes community. Nobody is in the way of anybody. We're in this together. Now, that was God's intentions in creating a faith community in the Old Testament, even with the church, obviously. Something that Israel loses sight of in Jeremiah's day, something that, quite frankly, the church forgets in our day. What we're going to see tonight is that the heart of Judah's mess is this messy, selfish heart of its people. And could it be that we all have the same messy, selfish hearts? Sometimes. Maybe not all the time, but sometimes. Maybe sometimes more than we would like to admit. The, the text tonight is going to challenge our conventions and instincts and requires us to ask ourselves some difficult questions. So if you would be willing to ask some difficult questions and answer some difficult questions, I think we'll get something out of this tonight. I, I hope you'll be willing to consider what God has put before us tonight because I think there's always room to grow and there's always calamity we can't avoid. So Jeremiah 5, 1 through 3, listen to God's word. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment or does justice, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they will swear falsely. O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have, not refused. They have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rocks. They have refused to return. So Jeremiah, or God's summonation of the people to Jeremiah is that they are a stubborn people. Jeremiah says, God, I've looked. There's nobody, nobody calls back. Remember when, Jared, when Abraham and God had that conversation about Sodom and Gomorrah? If you can just find 50 or 45 or down to five, 10, if you can just find 10 people, I'll spare the city. What does God say about Jerusalem? There's not one person in the city that's righteous. Not one so that's a lot more bleak than Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was not God's people. But Jerusalem was God's people, were God's people. And God says, you won't find a single person. And Jeremiah confirms that. There's not a single person. And now, I've got to say this. He's talking about the religious people. But there were people that were not religious, that were still accountable. But he was talking about the people who claimed to be 
God's people, but weren't God's people. Now, the, the biggest thing we hear all throughout Jeremiah is something that I grew up and I would read this all the time and it would be hard for me to understand. And then I finally, years ago, kind of understood what God is saying through this. But this phrase in verse one, people who execute or does judgment or justice. Judgment and justice are the same word in the Old Testament. I think we hear judgment and we think God's judgment. The, when it talks about man or woman doing judgment, it's about doing the right thing. It's about making the right judgment call. We heard that, we use that word like that. In newer translations, we'll say, do justice, as in do the right thing, and notice that has a horizontal context to it, as in there's a, there was no horizontal application of their vertical connection. Now, when I talk about horizontal, I mean person to person, that vertically we say we worship God, but horizontally our worship isn't there. Vertically, we are drawing near to God with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him, and our deeds are not of Him. So as verse 2 puts it, there was tremendous hypocrisy. They swear falsely, as in they confess on Saturday that they love the Lord, but Sunday through Friday, they don't live for the Lord. Particularly in how they treat each other. Not necessarily only how we treat each other, but obviously our horizontal is in how we behave and how we put our faith into practice. And here's what we're going to get into tonight. And again, this, is, this may sound so selective and so small in the grand scheme of things, but this is really the, the heart of Jeremiah's message. God's greatest contention with Judah was the divide between the poor and the rich, the have-nots and the haves. Now, I'm, we'll get to that in this text, but I want to go ahead and tell you up front, that is what God's greatest contention with Judah is, about the divide between the lower class people and the upper class people, and the ones that were deemed successful and the ones that were considered worthless. Now, here's where this is a hard conversation to have without letting politics get in the way. This is not a message advocating for a certain economic platform or a certain political system. Let me just go ahead and say that. This is a serious conversation about what God's Word has to say to every generation about injustice and the struggles between man and man, woman and woman, every person with every other person. Because the problem God has with Judah is that there is no one who is executing justice, no one who is doing the right thing to those in the world, those in the land who were not necessarily considered to be important, who those, those who were suffering, those who were oppressed. You hear this language all over the prophets, but we conveniently overlook it. Now, here's why we can't... We can't ignore this because I, as I put at number seven in your notes, this is a word from Deuteronomy 15. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. So this is not, again, this is not about politics. This is just about the reality that no matter what political system you have, no matter what economic system you have, no matter what country you live in, what generation you're a part of, there will always be poor in the land. And how we respond to the poor how we respond to those that are without directly reflects how we have responded to God. Because verse 15 of Deuteronomy, uh, verse 11 of Deuteronomy 15 does not say in certain political systems there's poor or in certain economic systems there's poor. It says there will always be poor people. And God has a very invested interest in how we respond to those people. 
there's no, we can't stop and say, well, how'd they get that way? There's no, we don't have that, we can't add to that, to that, that verse. What does God command us in Deuteronomy 15? I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land, in the, wherever you live. Now, we are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. Now, we can talk about who our brother and our sister is. We'll close with a conversation about that. But people that are lower than us, people that have less than us, are not objects of ridicule or scorn, but are people for whom we must always show compassion and always reach out to. Now, let me be very clear. The message is not about handing out. It's about reaching out. Two different things. The message is not about handing out, it's about reaching out, because reaching out doesn't just say, here's something to pacify you and to move you on. Reaching out is about investing in and walking alongside. Reaching out is not, hey, here's something, I'll see you later. Reaching out is, hey, I want to pick you up, I want to walk beside you because I care about you. Notice, this isn't about propping somebody up and walking away from them. This is about picking up, walking beside. There's a difference there, right? The reason we don't do this is because we honestly don't have time for anybody but ourselves. And that's the problem God has with Judah. They didn't have time for anybody but themselves. Our nature is to always look for reasons to not help people rather than to help people. I'm not saying that's what your nature is. That's what our nature is. And I don't think that's the way you live every day, but that's the way the majority of people live every day. We live for I. We want to find reasons to keep and not, help, not give. We want to find excuses to exalt us rather than reasons to humble ourselves. But just as God's heart beats for us, our hearts must always beat for others. Now, case in point, the tendency is to look down on those who have less or have accomplished less. And we see that right here in Jeremiah 5. Jeremiah was so shaped by his culture. When he heard from God there was no justice and there was duplicity and crookedness, he automatically thought the people that he should blame were the poor people. He automatically thinks, well, God, if there's anybody in this land that are unjust and that are crooked, it must be those that are not successful and those that don't have what the rest of us have. He was so trained by his culture to automatically look down on people. That's what he initially thought was the problem. Look at verse 4. Therefore I said, surely these are the poor. They are foolish, for they don't know the ways of God, the judgment of their God. I will go to the great men and speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. So what did Jeremiah initially think when he hears this problem in the land? Well, I bet it's, I know who, I know who, who we should blame. Now he's confessing this. Jeremiah is a godly man. But at this point in the story, he's still on the in crowd. He very quickly gets thrown out of the in crowd. This is why he gets thrown out. Because of something he says at the end of this chapter. And I've, I know what that's like. But Jeremiah says, I know who, the, who we should blame. It's the poor people. It's the little people. It's, the, it's, the, it's those people that are marginalized. So Jeremiah goes to the great people, the rich, the religious, the elite. And he says, hey, y'all obviously you know, agree with, you know, y'all are the ones that, that, that are holding things up. But what does Jeremiah realize in verse 5, the last part? But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. So Jeremiah is confessing 
Notice verse 4. Therefore I said, as in this is something that he had said, but realized wasn't the case. And he, he confesses and he says in the verse 5, the last half, but they have broken the yoke. They have burst the bond. As in the people that he expected to be holding things together, they weren't any better. And you can see how this could have been a self-fulfilling prophecy. They were going to blame the certain people. Turns out, Jeremiah realizes these stereotypes were wrong. But here's the thing. Our world loves to slice and dice society into categories, colors, and classes, doesn't it? Jeremiah confesses that's what he initially did. His re- Jeremiah's realization that the great ones in society, they weren't so great. Listen to verse 8. This is, I, no, the kids aren't in here, so I can get, I can get into the, the, the juicy stuff uh, that I skipped over earlier. They were like well-fed, lusty stallions. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. Now, I won't really go into detail about the Hebrew behind that, but I think y'all can explain, understand the English very well. So what is Jeremiah saying? The ones that were the most successful, that were the most blessed, they were so, so greedy they were so worried about themselves, they only wanted more and more and more. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this, God says? Go up on her walls, destroy, but do not make a complete end, because God was not judging Israel forever. He was open, leaving the door open for a return. But notice what he says, take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. He's speaking of the growth Israel had, the progress Israel had, the prosperity Israel had was not spiritual growth. It was carnal growth. God had blessed them, but they had took his blessings and made it all about them. So Jeremiah is told to cut their branches off because the branches that they had grown were not glorifying God. The house of Israel, the house of Judah has dealt treacherously with me, says the Lord. They've lied about the Lord and said, it is not, it, it is not he, neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. They mocked the fact that God might hold them accountable for the way they were living. I don't think they literally mocked him. I think they just mocked him in that the lives they were living were not glorifying God. It was just about themselves. They failed to rightly relate to to God. They put God's kingdom agenda on the back burner for their own. Does that remind you of any generation besides Israel's? Listen very carefully because this is where this is going. When we fail to rightly align our hearts with God, this will spill over in how we relate with other people. As in, when we turn from God, we will become inward and selfish, and we will, in the process of adultery, turn away from people and begin to see people as commodities. This is the danger. The danger of living for I. The problem wasn't that they set out to look down on others. The problem wasn't that they set out to use other people as a means to get ahead. The problem was they forgot who they were to live for. And this always happens. When we, when we misunderstand the vertical, the horizontal will fall apart. That when we are not rightly relating to God, we will not right, right, rightly relate to people. So the reverse is how we realize it. That when we're not living the right way with other people, there's a clue that maybe there's something not right 
up and down when something is not right left and right. Now, we can't always see how things are going up and down, but Jeremiah was, God was training Jeremiah on how to trace the problem. He says, Jeremiah, look at how they're living left to right. That suggests there's something not right up and down. Does that make sense? That when we don't have the outward lives that we should, that suggests there's something that's not right from heaven to us. Now, this is why, and this is when I go on my little, my, my little church church soapbox this is why the church is so essential to the christian faith because it brings us into community yes we have a personal responsibility to work and provide for ourselves but all that we make and all that we require and all that we are it is not ours it belongs to the kingdom of god now we agree on that don't we now don't confuse this this isn't socialism this isn't communism That's forceful acquisition by a man-made government that doesn't care about anybody. This is the kingdom of God I'm talking about. And what does the kingdom of God operate by? Charity. Capital C, charity. Love that sacrifices from individuals to a greater whole. And there's no greater picture of charity than when individuals come from their own separate lives and they pour into a greater whole. We do this locally, but we also do this universally because we're a part of the bigger kingdom, the bigger church. Now, since we're on the subject, there's nothing wrong with capitalism unless it loses its conscience. You hear me? Capitalism is a great system. Because everybody lives out their God-given responsibility to work and provide and take care of themselves. But when capitalism loses its conscience, as in when it forgets that there's a bigger kingdom, and it's not just my little silo, that it's God's kingdom, that's when capitalism loses its power to serve the kingdom of God. And we as Americans have an opportunity. We have the opportunity. And we've seen the benefits of this opportunity because of what we've been able to do for the kingdom of God through missions and through charity and through our love for one another. But when we lose our conscience, and I I feel like this is important to address because in our country right now there's this argument about what system should run the country. And we as God's people cannot get bitter toward this subject of uh, uh, that pretends like it's all about love and kindness and helping each other when it's really just the same greed that, that ruins any other system. But we know what really is important. When the church serves as an outlet, an opportunity to contribute from many to one. I, I, I copied and pasted the, the scripture I wanted to read from Acts. I got it in your notes. It's on the second page. I want to read this to you. Now, this is so controversial because it's so convicting. This is our, I copied and pasted it from the ESV translation, which is uh, what I use for my notes, but uh, it's not much different than the New King James at all. But listen to this. You can check it in your own Bibles. I would like, love for you to, but this is what Acts 4 says to us. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace that fell upon all of them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Joseph, who was called Barnabas, a Levite, 
of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Acts tells us that story to marvel at what God was moving people to do. Listen, not a single person was made to do this, but God moved every single person to do this. Hello? Nobody made anybody liquidate their assets. But God moved everybody to do it. Listen, I'm like you. I don't want nobody to tell me what to do with my money. But what does God tell us to do with what we have? It's so important. Barnabas, the reason why there's this lengthy description of who Joseph is, Joseph, who was called Barnabas, who was a Levite of Cyprus. Here's why that's so important. Levites could not own land because their, their inheritance was the Lord. Now, you tell somebody that your inheritance is God's, and while everybody else is making money and owning land, they won't really, that doesn't make them feel good. That makes them feel like, well, why am I left out? Barnabas had left or had never, he wasn't brought up in Israel. He was born in Cyprus. So as a Levite, for him to own land was a rare thing. No Levite in the land of Israel ever owned any property. So if you were a Levite and you owned property, you were somebody special. And Acts tells us that Barnabas, Joseph called Barnabas, was so moved by God, he sold his property and gave it all to God. Gave the proceeds. The point there is that's how much God was moving people. Nobody made them do this but God made them all do this. So, we can say all that doesn't apply to us, but look at verse 25. Your iniquities have turned these things, these good things away from you. Your sins have withheld good from you. Now listen, he's talking to a rich people. They had a lot of good stuff, but they weren't true riches. They were temporary riches. He's talking to people that were the richest of their society, and yet he says, y'all haven't even experienced the real good stuff. Now listen to this. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set traps. They catch men as a cage full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. They have become great and they have grown rich. Literally, the word great there means fat, but the King James kind of waters it down a little bit. <laughs> Therefore, they have become fat and grow. It says that after that. They have grown fat. They are sleek. I don't know what that means. I always picture somebody that's just so, they're just slick because they're so rich. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. I'm not going to get into that. But they are sleek. I preached on that a little too hard a long time ago. Did not end well. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause. They cause the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper. The right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things? It's pretty strong, isn't it? Jeremiah says they've grown fat and slick and rich and great. And in the process of living for I, they forgot the orphan they forgot the needy. And what is God's response? Shall I not punish them for this? Well, we might say, what was, the, what was worth punishing? They forgot. 
They forgot the needy. They forgot the poor. They forgot the orphan. Now, if we've forgotten the horizontal extension of our faith, we've probably never gotten the vertical element right. That's the way I kind of help. That helps. That's the best way I can summarize this. If we've forgotten the horizontal extension, we've probably never gotten the vertical right. Listen to what God has to say to, to us over in chapter 6. Slip over to chapter 6, verse number 10. I, again, read all this. It's, it's a little bit dense sometimes, but it's so important. Because this is so important for us. Verse 10 says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. So here's what God's word is for us. Don't let your ears close up so many won't hear God's word on this because it's messy and it requires conversations that we don't want to have but come on we must have ears to hear look at verse 13 because from the least of them to the greatest of them everyone is given to covetousness or greed from the prophet to the priest everyone deals falsely they have they have also healed the hurt of my land or my people slightly and I think healed should be in quotation marks there because they really were just pretending things were okay. Saying peace, peace, when there is no peace because in their own insular little circles they could say everything's fine, but it wasn't fine. And that's what Jeremiah was bringing to their, bringing to accuse them. They had shut off the rest of the world and everything was so good and seemed good inside the walls of the temple, but things were not so good outside the walls. Listen, many churches won't speak on this because it's a little bit touchy. Every Christian in every church must examine the horizontal of our faith. Listen, it's, it's, it's convicting for me because my horizontal is not preaching. My horizontal is the same as your horizontal. It's what I do out in this world. And it convicts me to talk about this because I want to push it off and say, well, you know what, God, that's not my problem. It is my problem. And I want to push it off because it just brings up so many uncomfortable things that our world has to deal with. But as I say in, in number 18, we cannot let the tension in our society created by politics displace the tension in our hearts created by God's Word. That I can't say I don't want to deal with these truths just because it's uncomfortable. God's Word continually compels us to remember those that don't have, remember those that have not, remember those that are below and beneath, and find out, figure out some way to horizontally extend our faith, and their direction. I've copied in your notes 2 Corinthians 9. This is just an excerpt of a chapter that's all about giving, all about serving. Paul says this is the point. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as, his heart has, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So that tells me this is something that God causes us to want to do and if there is no want to then that suggests there's not something there's something wrong between us and God God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you would have all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work so God wants to work through us if we are willing vessels as it is written he has distributed freely he has given to the poor the righteousness endures forever he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. 
You'll be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So J- Paul makes it so clear, this, this truth from Jeremiah is still important for us. How can we find a way to leverage our place in the world for those that might be just a little beneath us? Now, everybody has an opinion when it comes to helping and giving, but I decided a long time ago, I never want to end up on the side of heartlessness and arrogance. I know I've, I get in these conversations with people and everybody says, but, and they, those people, and they had this, and they had that opportunity, and they could be doing, I don't want, I made a decision a long time ago, I don't want to ever be in the category of heartless and arrogant. I want to always be on the side of compassion and charity because on that side, almost as important as helping somebody, being on that side grounds me at a place of remembering how God helped me. Now, before we close, down in verse 16, listen to what the Lord says. Stand in the way and see. Ask for the old paths where the good way is. Walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. What is this reference to these old paths? He goes on to say, did I not warn you what will happen to Israel if you do not obey my voice? If you do not remember what your place is in this world? I've copied for you the warning, the first of many warnings that God gave the Israel, the Jewish people. It's found in Deuteronomy 6. But listen to how this warning also reminds them that they should always understand their place and their blessings and how they should view those that don't have what they have. Deuteronomy 6 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, Houses full of things that you did not fill. Cisterns that you did not dig. Vineyards that you did not plant. So what do you think God's trying to get across to the Jews when he's saying that you did not, that you did not, that you did not? When you get to a place where you have and others don't have, don't don't believe the lie that somehow you're better than them. Because how did you get what you've got? Yeah, you worked for it. Yeah, you, you earned it. But what was, the, what was behind all of that? God gave it to you. Why did he give it to you? Who brought you out of the house of Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out of slavery. He goes on to say, if you forget this, you will be destroyed from the face of the earth. That's a little heavy, isn't it? But here we are in Jeremiah. Why were they going to be destroyed? Jeremiah's told us. If we forget how we got here and what we've been placed here for, we won't be here much longer. So let's remember how good God has been to us, to side in our hearts, to show and share his goodness with others. Let's not contribute to the division in our world, but let's work on erasing it and overcoming it. There are a lot of people in our world that are have-nots and have-less. Regardless of how they got there, we know how we got here. So what are we doing with that place that God has given us? Listen, when we, get to, when we look at the world through those eyes, we separate ourselves from the politics of it all, and all of a sudden the goodness of God starts weighing on our hearts in such a heavy way that we realize we should not engage with some of the silly stuff that goes on in our world 
the division between classes and cultures. And we should understand what has God done for me and how can I get, use that to help those that might be beneath me? This isn't about guilting us into doing anything. It's about reminding us what God has done for us. I, re- I recall the story of the Good Samaritan. The Pharisee and the Levite, they pass by, they look. But the Samaritan, what does that story tell us? He came to that one in the ditch and had compassion. He bound his wounds. He poured oil and wine. He set him on his own animal. And what's so important about that story is the, is, the, is the word he gives to the innkeeper. Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you. I mean, this is where I come in and say, well, what if he orders room service? And what if he orders stuff that's not right? And what if he wastes it? And what if, what if, what if? And this is where I just feel so awful for having those thoughts in the past. Because what, beat, what, what made the Samaritan's heart beat was how God had showed him mercy. And all he wanted to do was show somebody else mercy. And Jesus says to you and he says to me, go and do likewise. I left you some verses there from 1 John where John reminds us God's love for us. Who is our neighbor? Who is our brother? Who is our sister? I say it's anybody made by the same God we're made by pretty easy enough isn't it when we understand what God has done for us we will want to do that same for others Jeremiah had a had a really hard conversation with the Jews that in that those two chapters spoiler alert in chapter seven he gets thrown out of the temple he gets told to never come back on their property if he does they'll kill him they call he called their bluff they tried to kill him he wouldn't die put him in stocks, threw him in a well, carried him off to Egypt. He eventually died, but they couldn't silence him because 2,800 years later, 2,600 years later, his voice is still crying out from that well. His voice is still crying out from that desert when nobody would listen. So let's listen to Jeremiah, why don't we? I know I did a lot more preaching tonight and a lot less question and answering. I apologize, but uh, it was a lot to navigate through. Uh, before we get out of here, um, do y'all have any questions, any comments, um, anything you want to say in response to what I think is just a very difficult message to hear from Jeremiah? Not because I'm heartless, but because I want to interject all the buts and the ands and the don't you understand and don't you know what they've done and what they might do. I want to interject and get involved in all that. But I think God knew my excuses before he wrote this down. So I think it's best for me to say, okay, God, help me just to do what you said. And I don't want to end up fat and rich and slick and whatever that is, greasy and all that stuff. I don't want to, do, I don't, I don't want to be that. I don't know what that is, but I don't want to be that. And really miss out on the good stuff that God has for us. And we think we've got it good, but maybe we don't have it as good as we could because of what we put in the front and in the place of God. So... That's all from me. Anybody got anything you want to say? That's a lot of, um, we're not done. <laughs> it's, it, gets, it gets worse. Um, not worse, but more convicting. Yeah. Um, yeah, we do. And um, 
You know, it's, uh, the, world is, the world makes it difficult on us. The world makes us want to uh, just get in battles that really are not ours to fight. And uh, the political side of this thing, you know, I, that's, why, that's why I brought up the whole socialism, communism thing. Because, listen, I'm not endorsing that. God isn't endorsing that. The world might try to take these verses and say, yeah, the Bible says we should. That's not what God, God is not trying to set up a political or economic establishment with these verses. But he is saying to the church, don't let that stuff distract you. Y'all go be like me. If I wanted to set a go- I'll set up a government one day that'll do what I want to do. But I think we as Americans have an opportunity the rest of the world doesn't have. Because we have the choice to do with our treasure. They tax us as death or as it is already. <laughs> but we have a choice to do with our treasure, what we want to do. And yeah, they tax us a lot. And they might tax us more one day. But we still bring home enough to say and to decide what we want to do with it. So... That's why I think this is so convicting. Not because, I think the government, the political side of it is just an excuse that we can hide behind. I want to hide behind that because it helps me avoid the reality that I live in right now that says, yeah, what are you doing with, with what you do have? Um, and I don't, think it's, I don't think it's ever been more appropriate than in 2020 with all the, the conversations about race and about you know, socioeconomic disparity and all that stuff. Let's not try to get on any side of the politics of it all, but let's just say this is what God wants us to do and let's do it. And you know what? Love always loves and charity always uh, helps. And let's always do what Paul says is the greatest thing that a Christian can do, which is love one another. So anybody else got anything you want to say? Well, thank y'all for bearing with me. Um, I appreciate that. I'm new to this sort of, uh, I've not preached that really before. Um, I've, it's peppered in throughout my, you can see why that might not be the most popular message to preach in some churches in today's world um, because it does cause some uncomfortable conversations, but I think it's important ones and I think it's beneficial ones. So let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you. Thank you for this truth that is so relevant to us. And God, politicians want to try to steal this stuff and try to say, well, yeah, this is why my agenda is right. And Lord, help us to see through all that. God, we love you and we love your word and we know what you've done for us. You, you reached down to hell and you saved us from it. And you've given us a life that we didn't deserve. Lord, there's a lot of people in this world that are struggling. A lot of people in this world that don't have what we have and never will. And it's easy to look at them and say they're the problem or they don't deserve what they have already. And they, it's easy to do all that, Father. But God, help me not to fall into that trap and let the devil distract me from what my job is as a Christian, which is to love and give and reach out. God, thank you for all these wonderful, wonderful people that love you and put you so first on their, in their lives that they're here at church on a Wednesday night. Help them to stay strong through all the tension in our world and have their hearts and their minds made up. They're going to love you, and they're going to love each other. And when people see our horizontal lives, they will know there's a vertical connection, an unmistakable connection between God and his child. We ask all of this in you, our Father's name. Amen.